Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. Each episode within this podcast series, we delve into a different medical topic with an expert speaker to join us. If you want to find more about the Royal College, then please do head over to the RCPE website and have a look at the education stream and see if membership would work for you. It offers a host of educational updates and activities such as the evening medical updates, the Royal College Symposia and many more. Please don't forget if you listen to our podcast to give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms or subscribe so that it can come directly into your podcast stream. My name is Kerry Baker and I'm an acute physician in NHS Fife and Director of Education at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. Did you know that according to the King's Fund, 44% of doctors in the UK are female? That's over one quarter of a million of us. That includes 55% of medical students and 54% of postgraduate trainees. If this trend continues, women will make up the majority of medical workforce within the next decade. However, only 32% of consultants and 24% of medical directors are women. And women are underrepresented in leadership and academic roles. Together, the Royal Colleges of Physicians and Surgeons of Edinburgh, on behalf of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, are hosting an exciting two-day Women in Leadership event on the 27th and 28th of April. The first day will be a hybrid conference at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh in our city centre-based conference centre, and also available online via live web streaming for those who cannot attend in person. The second day will be an interactive in-person event at the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh with workshops, parallel sessions and the opportunity to interact with a range of inspirational speakers and hosts. This event is about helping build the workplace that we and our future colleagues and public deserve. It's about celebrating and inspiring women in leadership to serve as role models. We have an incredible range of speakers lined up for you, including Professor Dame Sally Davis, the previous CMO for England, and Professor Dame Carrie McEwen, the chair of the GMC. We hope to see you there. Welcome everyone to another episode of Clinical Conversations. My name is Amy Prado. I'm a clinical teaching fellow in Bristol at the moment, as well as being on the training and members committee for the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh. Today I'm very pleased to be joined by Professor Patrick Kiley, a consultant rheumatologist in St George's Hospital in London. So today we're going to be discussing giant cell arteritis or GCA. So first of all, I'll just ask Patrick to introduce himself. Well, hello, Amy, and thank you very much for inviting me. So I'm Patrick Hiley. I'm a consultant rheumatologist at St. George's in London and also professor of practice in clinical rheumatology at St. George's University of London. Fantastic. Let's get straight into it. So we're talking about GCA today. Why is it important to talk about this and why are we doing a podcast on this topic today? GCA, giant cell arteritis, is one condition which I suppose we all fear missing or diagnosing too late because the feared complication of this condition is irreversible blindness from occlusion of the posterior ciliary artery, which supplies the optic nerve head. So it is a rheumatological emergency. We don't have very many of those in rheumatology, and so we're usually very careful to try and diagnose this promptly and treat before that feared complication occurs. Are there any particular eye signs or symptoms that you should be particularly worried about? Or if anyone has anything at all wrong with their vision, should you be worrying? So I think with all of these conditions, we have to recognise the pattern. 
pattern recognition is so important in clinical medicine. And so there's a particular constellation of features which might raise your suspicion, could this be giant cell arteritis? So the demographic is a person over the age of 50 who tells you that he or she is experiencing a new, persistent, severe, and usually localized headache in the temporal region of the head. So these really important words, it's got to be new, not just a chronic headache that's been going around for months and months. It's persisting, so day and night, and it's nasty. It's a severe headache, which is not responsive to paracetamol or ibuprofen. And the localization to the temporal region is a clue that in that particular person's story, the temporal artery may be involved, but you can have scalp tenderness, jaw claudication, and most importantly, it's a systemic inflammatory condition. So the person just does not feel well. It's more common in women than men, but men do get it. It's very rare in black people. So if it's a non-white person, then you might be thinking twice, but it's not impossible to find it in the black population. But it's generally a disease of white people over the age of 50, more likely women, and they have this specific new persistent nasty headache, usually in the temporal region, with systemic features of malaise and being unwell, maybe fevers, maybe night sweats. Thank you. That's really interesting. I'm sure you can agree that patients don't always present the way textbooks suggest they might. Does GCA ever present, say, with a headache outside of the temple area, for example, or with any other symptoms? I suppose I'm asking about variations of GCA. So, of course, so we basically think about GCA as the classic um, version, which is called cranial giant cell arteritis, where the cranial branches of the aortic arch are involved. So that's the vertebral arteries and then the common crossed arteries, which divide into internal and external crossed arteries. But there is also another version of giant cell arteritis, which is so-called extracranial GCA, which affects the aorta and or its proximal branches. And of course, those vessels don't necessarily give rise to symptoms. So there you have a patient who may be unwell with systemic features of malaise, fever, night sweats off their food, and they just can't put a finger on what's wrong with them. Blood tests may show and invariably do show a high CRP. So you know there's an inflammatory process, but you can't quite find out where it is. And simply, even in cranial GCA, again, you have these constitutional features of systemic inflammation and the CRP is substantially raised, but not necessarily the temporal arteries involved. So instead, they may have tenderness across the scalp when they comb their hair or just touch their head. Or if they're chewing their food, they may feel pain down the line of the jaw. And of course, worst scenarios would be visual symptoms. So amaurosis fugax, blinding temporal curtain across the field of vision or temporary blindness, and even stroke from the vertebral basilar distribution. So all of these things, they're all part of pattern recognition. But it's important to point out the person is systemically unwell, usually with a raised CRP, and then you have maybe localizing symptoms if it happens to be cranial GCA or no localizing symptoms at all if it's extracranial GCA. And how common is the extracranial GCA variant? Well, this is a rare condition. I think the overall incidence of GCA in people over 50 is about 17 per 100,000 people per year. So this is not a diagnosis you should be expecting to make on the acute medical take every week and even every month. It is not common. And there's loads of other causes of headache, which are far more likely than someone having GCA as the explanation for their headache. And that's why you have to put the age, the demographics, white population, more likely female. And I'm particularly interested in the patient's C-reactive protein because if they haven't had any steroids at all, then the C-reactive protein is invariably high, way above 10. And if it's less than 10, you should really think hard about could this be GCA. It's not impossible, but it's highly unlikely the CRP is in single figures. So we've sort of touched a bit on the demographics 
and a little bit about the investigations as well. Would it be all right to just take a step back and go through what GCA is and what causes it? And you've touched on this a bit as well, but let's just go into that in a little yeah. bit more detail. So it's idiopathic, so we don't know what causes it. And it's a transmural granulomatous vasculitis affecting large and medium-sized vessels only. So vasculitis is a word that's often used and tossed around in differential diagnoses. It's just worth reminding ourselves, what is vasculitis? And it is where the wall of an artery or a vein in some conditions is the focus inflammation. So the wall of the vessel is where the inflammation is. And therefore, because the features of inflammation include edema and swelling, there is a potential for the lumen of the blood vessel to be occluded by inward swelling from the intima coming in and occluding the lumen. And so for the blood vessel itself, the wall is inflamed. For the temporal arteries, you may well feel that the artery is thickened. And because this is not a contiguous process, the artery may be beaded in areas of inflammation and then areas which are normal than areas of inflammation. So beading, which is tender, so calor, dolor, tumor, rubor, and so forth, tender, swollen, and then the consequence of the swelling of the wall is occlusion of the lumen and therefore loss of arterial flow. And that's why we fear the posterior ciliary artery being occluded because that leads to blindness because of ischemia of the optic nerve head. And indeed, any other artery which is affected, the tissue which is supplied by that artery can then become compromised if the lumen is occluded, unless, of course, collateral vessels open up. So it's a vasculitis, inflammation of the wall of the blood vessel, and this particular vasculitis involves large and medium vessels, and histologically it is a granulomatous transmural process. Okay, great. That was a really clear explanation. I don't suppose you know why this happens in the first place. No, it's idiopathic, Amy. We just don't know. Out of the blue. Well, that's out what we say blue. to patients. It's just come out of the blue. It's idiopathic. Yeah. Is there any research looking into that at the moment at all? Or I don't know. Really? Maybe. I imagine sure. so, but, but I can't say. Okay. So we've touched on investigations a little bit as well. But would it be okay just to recap the most important yes, investigations sure. for GCA? Yes, no, sure. So you have a patient in front of you, you've got the right demographic, and you're hearing a story which made you think, oh, this could be GCA. So the most important blood test, to my mind, is the CRP. And if that is over 10, then that increases your clinical suspicion. I don't tend to favour the ESR so much because we have to remind ourselves that the ESR is influenced by other non-inflammatory situations. So it's higher the older we get. It's generally higher in women than men. It's higher if somebody is anemic, if they've got a paraprotein or just a polyclonal increase in immunoglobulins. And so the ESR is raised. It doesn't mean you've definitely got an inflammatory process. Whereas if the C-reactive protein is raised, that's driven by IL-6 and that is a pro-inflammatory cytokine. So the CRP is really crucial. And then we do imaging. And what we do a lot of now, which we didn't used to do, is an ultrasound of both temporal arteries and both axillary arteries. And what we're looking for on the ultrasound is thickening of the vessel wall, because the vessel wall is where the inflammation is. It's edematous, and so it's thickened. And on ultrasound, the vessel wall is actually a hypoechoic area, so it's a reduced echo signal. And that comes across on cross-sectional imaging as a halo around the lumen. And you can see it's also on longitudinal imaging as a sort of hypoechoic line either side of the vessel wall. And so a non-compressible periluminal halo is the ultrasound way of telling you there's a thickened arterial wall. And that has the same sensitivity and specificity as a biopsy, around about 77% sensitivity and about 96% specificity for GCA. So the right demographics, the right story, severe, nasty headache, not getting better with paracetamol, raised CRP, ultrasound. 
if the ultrasound is negative, it doesn't rule out giant cell arteritis. And if you still think the clinical suspicion is moderate or high, you would still go on and do a biopsy of a temporal artery. But because we ultrasound both temporal arteries and we ultrasound both axillary arteries, we've got a very high chance of seeing something along the lengths of those arteries. So why are you doing the axillary arteries as well? Because they are medium-sized arteries and they are involved in cases of GCA, in the extracranial GCA. And they can often be there in silent. Okay. Do you find they are often involved with the yes, temporal arteries? Indeed. Yes, the answer that, yes, the ultrasound often pick it up in the axillary arteries. And the nice thing about ultrasounding an axillary artery is that it's a long length of arteries amenable to ultrasound. The temporal artery is only so long on the side of the temporal bone, but the axillary artery in the axilla is actually quite a long stretch that you can get out from ultrasound. So you've got even more arterial length to assess. That's interesting. I didn't realise you did the axillary as well. Is there any situation where a temporal artery biopsy wouldn't be necessary at all? Okay, so this is a slightly contentious question because historically we would have said that everybody must have a temporal artery biopsy within seven to ten days of starting prednisolone. But the British Society for Rheumatology has got a very nice algorithm in its guidelines for the assessment and management of giant cell arteritis. And what they would say is that if your clinical probability of giant cell arteritis is high, so that's your constellation of symptom signs and lab tests, and the ultrasound comes back positive, then that's it. That confirms the diagnosis. You don't need to do a biopsy. And at the other end of the spectrum, if your clinical probability of giant cell arteritis is low, so symptoms aren't great, signs aren't there, lab tests are poor, low CRP less than 10, and the ultrasound is negative, then that basically rules it out. You don't need to do a biopsy. But anything else in between, you should do a biopsy. So that would be positive ultrasound with low clinical probability or negative ultrasound with high clinical probability, you would do a biopsy. And we just biopsy one side, one temporal artery, and we try and get at least a centimetre in length. It's not a contiguous inflammation of the artery wall. It can be non-contiguous, so you may get areas of inflammation and then normal areas. So you want a reasonable length to be able to assess the whole length okay. to make sure you don't miss inflammation. And presumably you would take a biopsy from the side that the patient's having the headache on yes, or does it not normally. actually matter too much which side you go for well there was a vote at a time for doing bilateral temporal artery biopsies but the pickup from the other side is it doesn't really enhance the diagnostic yield so yes you go for the side where the patient's got the headache okay so if that came back negative let's just say would you then look at another diagnosis well, it depends on your clinical probability. So it is a clinical diagnosis at the end of the day. So you've got a high clinical probability. You're really suspicious it's GCA. The CRP is raised. The ultrasound is negative and the temporal artery biopsy is negative. You still have to make a clinical judgment. And it may be, you know, we just may have just got unlucky that the biopsy just didn't pick an inflamed area and unlucky that the ultrasound didn't show it up. And of course, ultrasound is very operator dependent. The person needs to know what they're looking for. And so there are situations where you would just say, look, I'm going to take a clinical view on this. This is a nasty headache. The temporal artery is tender. They're the right Asian demographic. You know, I need to treat this. And you would still treat it if you felt the clinical probability was high. But of course, you really do hope for the luxury of some imaging or histological confirmation if you can get it. OK, that's a really clear overview. Thank you. So there is often a worry about underdiagnosing GCA, I think, which can lead to excessive steroid being prescribed. What's your opinion on this topic in general? Let's talk a bit about treatment, I think, because you know, we don't want someone to go blind because we've missed a diagnosis. But the initial treatment is high-dose corticosteroid. And that means a milligram per kilogram body weight, usually with a maximum of 60 milligrams prednisone per day. I like to give it in divided doses, say 30 milligrams morning and 30 milligrams at night. 
if they've already got visual symptoms, so amaurosis fugax or temporary blurring of vision, and you're really concerned that they're at risk of blindness, that's particularly those who have jaw claudication, the older age population and previous transient visual disturbance. They're the ones that make you really worry they may go blind. Then we tend to give intravenous methylprednisolone, 500 milligrams or even a gram for up to three days. There's no great evidence that IV methylprednisone reduces the chance of blindness better than just giving high-dose oral prednisolone, but at least the bioavailability is confirmed. You've definitely got it into them, whereas sometimes oral prednisolone you can be let down by poor absorption from the gastrointestinal tract. So if you really think of patients at high risk of blindness, they've already got visual symptoms, we tend to give intravenous methylprednisone because we're absolutely sure about bioavailability. So the point here, therefore, is you're giving really high doses of corticosteroid to try and stop the patient going blind. And there's good evidence that that works. But if they haven't got giant arteritis, then you have to be very mindful of the fact you're giving very toxic doses of steroids. If the patient's hypertensive, if they're diabetic or even borderline diabetic, you're going to push their sugars high, you're going to put their blood pressure up. And there are a whole range of cognitive adverse effects from high-dose steroid, mental agitation, blurring of consciousness, or just generally patients being completely mentally out of sorts, not able to sleep at night, getting very tired. There's a whole host of things that steroids will do, which have to be explained and reassured, but we don't want to do that if the person doesn't have the diagnosis. So we give high-dose steroid as soon as we can, and then we get on with the ultrasound and the biopsy to really hope to get the confirmation of our high clinical probability or our moderate clinical probability that this is GCA. If there's a low clinical probability of GCA and the imaging is negative, and if you do a biopsy that's negative as well, then stop the steroids because you'll do more harm than good by giving somebody unnecessary steroids. But it is a balance. This is where you need to refer to rheumatology specialists who are used to making that balanced judgment. And it can be really tricky at times. Okay, so generally you'd advise not just trialing steroids unless your clinical suspicion is high enough, I guess. Well, I think if your clinical suspicion is low and the CRP is low, rheumatologists may just say you don't need to give steroids. They may agree with you. But if the clinical suspicion is anything more than low, then I would give steroids to everybody, but I'd be prepared to stop them pretty quickly if my low clinical suspicion or moderate clinical suspicion was not supported by ultrasound and or by biopsy. But it is a grey area trying to decide how likely is this before I do my tests. And if my tests don't confirm it and the likelihood was high, I'm going to carry on with steroids. If the tests don't confirm it and that it was always rather low, then I will stop the steroids. Okay, just speak to rheumatology. Yeah, it is tricky. And rheumatologists, you know, agonise over this too sometimes. Because for every case that's black and white and barn door, there'll be cases that are fudgy, head in the middle. But ultrasound and biopsy do help. Okay, so apart from steroids, are there any other options at all for treatment? So there was a breakthrough study called GIACTA, G-I-A-C-T-A, which was published recently from Boston, where they took patients with GCA and they gave them either tocilizumab, an anti-IL-6 receptor monoclonal antibody, or placebo alongside the steroid. And then on purpose, they stopped the steroid way too early, either at 26 weeks or at 52 weeks. Now, normally, we would keep steroids going for about two years for a diagnosis of giant cell arteritis. We taper them down, but they remain steroid exposed for two years. And so if you take a trial and in the placebo arm or the control arm, you stop the steroids at six months or at a year, you are asking for relapse. And indeed, they saw relapse of about 85% when they did this. However, they used tocilizumab, an anti-IL-6 receptor antibody, to see if that could prevent relapse and thereby enable a steroid sparing effect because if steroids were stopped, but would they remain okay with ongoing tocilizumab? And there was a significant difference because the relapse rate in the tocilizumab arm was about 53% compared to approximately 85% in the placebo arm. 
So you still got a relapse of half in the tocilizumab arms, but it was significantly less than the relapse rate of 85% in the placebo arms when steroid was stopped way too soon. So what NICE in England and Wales tell us is that if you have a patient who is on steroid for GCA and they don't tolerate the steroid or they fail to taper the steroid and there is a high risk of steroid adverse events such as exacerbation of diabetes or hypertension, then we can use tocilizumab and we can use it for up to a year. And that is now being used. We also sometimes will use conventional synthetic disease-modifying immune-suppressing drugs such as lefunamide and methotrexate to limit the exposure to steroid. And there is some trial data for other biologic drugs such as Batacept, which is a co-stimulation blocker of T-cell activation, or IL-12-23 inhibitors such as ustekinumab. But those are still at the experimental stages. Okay, so you have to generally trial steroids initially and then swap them over to a steroid-sparing agent? Yes, that's right. Would there be a role in the future potentially for just going straight onto one of these steroid sparing agents? Well, if you have a patient who you really, really don't want to give high dose steroid to, because you can just see a whole host of comorbidities, so high body mass index, hypertension, diabetes, and so forth, and your heart just sinks that you think, oh my goodness, I've just made a diagnosis of GCA and I'm going to give this person steroid and high dose. They're going to be steroid exposed for two years. You just know it's all going to be awful. They're the ones you really, really want to give tocilizumab to as a monotherapy agent from the word go. And we just hope that those trials are going to be done and going to enable us to do that. But the unspoken factor, which NICE take very seriously, is the cost of therapeutic intervention. And whereas corticosteroids are very cheap, tocilizumab is the opposite. And that's why they limit our use of this drug to certain situations. But ideally, we want to get people who need tocilizumab onto tocilizumab as early as possible to prevent them having unnecessary steroid toxicity. Sure. And are there any significant side effects with tocilizumab or any of the other ones as well? Well, I mean, they're all immune suppressive drugs, so there is an increased risk of conventional bacterial infection. There's a concern about diverticulitis with tocilizumab. It suppresses the IL-6, and therefore the CRP doesn't go up. So what we worry about is the person's on tocilizumab and they have a community-acquired infection, they come into the acute medical unit or A&E, and their CRP is not very high. In fact, it's very low because we're on tocilizumab. And they may be inappropriately reassured and sent home saying, you can't, you must be fine, your CRP is fine. But it's always worth remembering that tocilizumab suppresses the CRP. And so other situations which drive a CRP response, such as bacterial infection, don't do so when you're on tocilizumab. So that makes it tricky to assess a patient on tocilizumab if they have an intercurrent infection. Yeah, okay, sure. Okay, so thank you very much, Dr. Kylie. You've given us a very thorough and easy to understand overview of GCA with the most important points for the on-call medic. And you've also given us a little bit of insight into rheumatology as a specialty. So thank you very much. Before we end this episode, I'm just going to ask if you could give three key messages for the listeners to take home from this episode, which they can use in their clinical practice day to day. Okay, so first off, I suppose, is always be aware of giant cell arthritis as a potential explanation for somebody coming into the acute medical unit. That's because of the feared complication of blindness from occlusion of the posterior ciliary arteries. And we try really hard to not see this happen by being aware of the diagnosis, starting steroids rapidly, and then hopefully preventing that complication. So it is a medical emergency. The second thing really is, I think with all of medicine, it's about pattern recognition. So just follow a pathway, look at the demographics of the patient, take the history. We're looking for a new onset, persistent, localised, nasty headache, not responsive to standard analgesia. Examine them. The artery may be tender, may be beaded. Do the tests. Look for a raised CRP, at least 10, and often it's way higher than that. And then move on, having decided on a clinical probability, could this be GCA or not, move on to investigations. So ultrasound of both temporal arteries and axillary arteries, followed, if necessary, by a temporal artery biopsy. 
If you think the probability is anything more than low, get going with steroids immediately, but be then prepared to enter a dialogue with yourself or hopefully the rheumatologist to get it right when you've got all the tests back. Because there's as much danger, in my view, of inappropriate overtreatment with steroid when it never was GCA in the first place as there is with underdiagnosis and someone going blind because you didn't consider the diagnosis in the first place. And this is a very tricky balance. And so always involve rheumatology, but stick to the pathway, history, exam, tests, and then consider the data and go from there. That's fantastic. Thank you very much. Very clear. And you've given us a lot to think about. So that's great. So that actually ends today's episode. I've really enjoyed our chat today and I've learned a lot as well. So thank you very much for taking the time out to be here. I hope everyone listening has also enjoyed it. So I think we'll call it a day. Thank you very much again, Dr. Kylie. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for your time. And I hope you all enjoyed it too.